You may be seated. Genesis chapter 1 is ground zero of the most debated topic in the history of the world, namely the existence and nature of God. And so Genesis 1 has been fought over by all kinds of people for thousands of years. This week I made a list of all the people that I know of, or all the types of people that I know of, who are currently debating Genesis chapter 1. Here's the list. Atheists, polytheists, Jews, Muslims, Mormons, Hindus, philosophers, mathematicians, physicists, astronomers, biologists, paleontologists, geologists, geneticists, and even Bill Nye, the science guy, is currently taking aim at Genesis chapter 1. Now, on top of this, most of the debate over Genesis is within Christianity. I read an article this week called The 17 Christian Views of Genesis chapter 1. I made it through the first 12 and I couldn't do it anymore, so I gave, I gave up. But needless to say, Genesis 1 is going to bring up a lot of questions. And as we work through the book of Genesis, there are going to be a lot of opportunities to disagree, to question, and debate. I also know that a certain percentage of the population is genetically predisposed to trolling. They have the spiritual gift of trolling and picking fights. Uh, did, did anyone watch the Vikings-Packers game last week? Anyone watch that? So the Vikings won. Kirk Cousins, the quarterback, played better than the Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. And shortly after the game, someone tweeted this out. Here's, here's the picture. So here's Kirk Cousins uh, holding his baby, Aaron Rodgers. And, uh, I saw that picture and I thought, that's pretty good. This is a tutorial on how to pick a fight, how to troll people, and a debate erupted over who's a better quarterback right now, Aaron Rodgers or Kirk Cousins, and it went back and forth, back and forth. And in the world we live in, there is a lot of fighting for the sake of fighting. And within the Christian world, there's a lot of fighting for the sake of fighting. And as a church, we are going to get, in, we're going to get into, into some heavily debated topics. And I want to encourage us from the beginning not to debate just for the sake of debate. I want to encourage good discussions. I want to encourage disagreement and love. I, I want to encourage people asking questions and hearing people's, other, or hearing people's views. But we want to do all of this in a spirit of love so that Christ is honored and the church is unified. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two questions. Question one is what is Genesis chapter 1 teaching. What does Genesis 1 teach? What can happen is that we can skip, because there's so many questions and so many debates, we can skip immediately to the debates, and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to look at what is Genesis 1 actually teaching. The second question is, what, what are we to learn from Genesis chapter 1? What are we supposed to learn from Genesis chapter 1? So let's start with the first question. What is Genesis 1 teaching? Well, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1 establishes God as the eternal, self-existing creator of everyone and everything. So this is a summary statement about who God is. He is the creator of everyone and everything. Verse 2 zooms in on planet Earth. And look at how Earth is described in verse 2. Now the, the Earth was formless and empty. The, the phrase formless and empty is a poetic Hebrew phrase. Tohu vavohu. It means that Earth is uninhabitable at this point, not suitable for life. Why? Because darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. So earth is a giant, dark water ball. 
And then it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So in verse 2, we are introduced to the Spirit of God. And the presence of the Spirit of God creates in us anticipation that God is about to do something. He's about to do something to planet Earth. He is focused in on Earth. And what he does is that in six days, he creates everything. On the seventh day, he rests. In six days, he creates everything. And his act of creation over six days breaks into two parts. The first part is day, it's days one through three. And this is where God forms. It says earth was formless and empty. Days one through three, God is going to form earth. Days four through six, God fills. He's going to fill earth with life and he's going to fill the universe with stars. So God forms and then he fills. Days one through three, God forms. Days four through six, God fills. And he does all of this by the power of his word. We are not supposed to to miss that. We We are supposed to ponder the fact that God created everything out of nothing by the power of his word. And if we skip right past that, we don't pay attention to that, we will miss so much of what God wants to teach us. So let's jump into day one, Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So on day, three, or day, day one in verse three, let there be light. God says, let there be light, and there was light. Day, on day one, God creates light. Light did not exist up until this point. There was only darkness. Now, where does the light come from? Well, God said, let there be light. And so this is the creation of light. There, does, there did not have to be light. There's no necessity of light. There doesn't have to be anything in the universe. It is God who created everything, and it is God who created light. Now, light is energy. It's energy. It is a particle, and it is a wave. And it travels in a straight line through space at the speed of light. Now, what is the speed of light? Well, I'm sure most of us have heard of this before, but it's 186,000 miles per second. So just think about that for a a moment, 186,000 miles per second. If you're trying to visualize that, that would mean that light would travel from here all the way around to the earth and back seven and a half times in one second. Who created the light? God. Who created the speed of light? God. And so the claim of Genesis 1-3 is that God spoke light into existence. Now, where did the light come from? God created it. Next, God calls the light good. He calls the light good. Genesis 1-4, God saw that the light was good. This is the creator rejoicing in his creation. The creator rejoicing in his creation. We do this all the time. I made some ribs recently. They cooked for four hours, took them out. They cooled. I ate them. I said, that's good. It's good. This is good. We do this all the time with, when we create. This is God, not by trial and error, slowly but surely perfecting light. That's not what's happening. This is instantaneous, perfect light. And God sees the light and he says, it's good. Third, on day one, God creates day and night. Day and night. The structure of days, weeks, months, and years, starting with day and night, was created by God on the first day. Verse five, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So this is what he does on the first day. Day two, God creates the sky. He creates the sky. He creates the atmosphere for planet earth. Verse six, then God said, 
let there be an expanse between the water, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Remember, God is forming the earth. This is what he's doing days one through three. He's forming the earth. He's, he's taking an uninhabitable place, not a sinful place, but an uninhabitable place, and he's making it habitable, inhabitable, so people can live here. Life can thrive on this planet. Day three, God creates dry land in the oceans. Verse nine, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is the pattern. He sees his creation and he says, this is good. He saw that it was good. And so he separates dry land from the seas. He separates night from darkness, day and night. This is what he does all throughout the creation account. So now we have dry land and we have the oceans. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. So on the third day, God creates vegetation. So this is where he creates grass and plants and trees and flowers. This is where earth, planet earth, starts to look like the planet earth that we know. Instead of this dark, watery ball, now it starts to look like this beautiful creation. Here are a few pictures just to get our minds moving here. Here's a picture of the mountains with the river. It's incredible, the beach. I'd like to go there. Uh, that'd be beautiful. Uh, here's the Dead Sea. I don't know if it was dead yet, but there's the Dead Sea. And then here's a cliff, a beautiful cliff with the ocean. It's breathtaking. If you want to go to the next picture, the trees on a hill with a lake. Next picture, a forest. Next, a waterfall. We have the desert here. And then lastly, the picture with the mountains and the trees and a beautiful lake. And, and it, it's important for us to sense what Genesis is saying. So when, when we look at the trees, when we look at the trees and we look at the mountains and we look at the lakes and we look at the water, we look at the world that God has made and our souls ask, where did it come from? We're not supposed to say, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe it was God. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at creation and say, this belongs to God. He created it. He spoke it into existence. And remember, at this point, God has not, he has not filled the earth. He has, he's still in the process on day three, forming the earth for life. Now, obviously, there are trees that are alive, but there's no, there's, there are no creatures yet on planet earth. Day four, God begins to fill the universe with the stars. There's a change. He moves from forming to filling. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. So what is the purpose of the stars in the sky? Why does he do this? Why does God do this? Many reasons. One is to provide light for planet Earth. Another reason is to, to keep track of time, 
to keep track of the days and the weeks and the months and the years. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years. Verse 15, they will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. So he just spoke and boom, here's everything. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. So on day four, God creates the moon, the stars, and the planets. And you're like, okay, that makes sense, but try to... Try to envision what that means, that God also, at this point, has created all of the laws which govern the universe. So up until this point, Earth is not orbiting the sun, because there was no sun until day four. So I don't know, is Earth like, is it just floating in the universe? Is it spiraling out of control? I don't know. But at this point, Earth is orbiting the sun. Earth is orbiting the sun. The laws that govern the universe are in place. And who created all the laws that govern the universe? Where did they come from? God. He created the universe and all the laws which govern the universe. And the more you study the universe, creation, the more your jaw will drop. And that's the point. The heavens declare the glory of God. We are supposed to to marvel at what God has done. We are supposed to look at the universe that God has made. We're not, we are not as human beings, as followers of Christ, we're not designed to live with our head down in our phone. We're, we're supposed to live with our heads up, paying attention to the world that God has made. Here are a few more pictures of the world that God has made. Here's uh, planet Earth. It's a fairly recent picture from NASA, but this is where we live. Here's the next picture. This is from Saturn. That little dot is planet Earth from Saturn. And then we have tons of pictures of the stars. These are all taken from planet Earth on a dark night. If you want to go to the next picture and the next picture, that's breathtaking. If you want to go to the next picture here and the next picture, here's the moon. This is the moon that God has made. This is God's moon. If you want to go to the the sun, here's a picture of, of the sun. I think it's a million times bigger than planet Earth. This is where, this is, this is what we are orbiting, this giant ball of gas in the sky. And there are billions and billions of details in creation that overwhelm our senses. If you pay attention to them, they will overwhelm our senses. And they are designed to produce worship. We are designed, we are designed by God to look at his creation and to worship him, to show him gratitude to understand, to to get a little bit of understanding of who he is. And I want to encourage all of you to just, to learn something about creation. I don't care what it is. Anything you learn about in creation will blow your mind. You want to learn about worms? Go learn about worms. They will blow your mind. Just learn about something in creation. We walk around planet earth and we take everything for granted and we don't We don't sense the gravity of living in the world that God has made. I want to give you just a few details about uh, the earth's core. I I would imagine none of us think about the earth's core. When was the last time you thought to yourself, I wonder how the earth's core is doing? Is it doing all right? Probably never happened. So I'm going to give you a few details about the earth's core. So at the core of planet earth is metal. 
nickel, and iron. Now, is it solid or is it liquid? It's both. So here's a picture diagram. The inner core is solid. The outer core is liquid. And at the center of the earth, it is as hot as the surface of the sun. The center of our earth is as hot as the surface of our sun. And the temperature of the earth is what keeps the proper proportion of liquid to solid. It allows for a certain percentage of the metal to be liquid, like lava, and a certain percentage to be solid. Now, why does that matter? Well, because at the center of the earth, at the core of the earth, there is this movement of the solid metal in the liquid, hot lava liquid. So if you want to go to the next picture, this is called the fluid convection currents at the core of the earth. And what happens is that this this liquid metal, hot liquid lava metal, it's moving and it's moving in a particular direction and it's moving one way. And then at some point, they're not exactly sure why, it reverses and moves the other way. And this, re- this reversing of the direction that it moves, it's happening all the time, is what creates the electromagnetic field that protects planet Earth. There's like this cosmic electromagnetic force field that protects planet Earth. So here's one way to envision it. And you think to yourself, why do we need that? Planet Earth, why do we need that? Well, because of the sun. When you go outside and you feel the warmth of the sun, it feels so good. But why doesn't the sun burn your face off? Why doesn't it burn your your face off? Well, there's an electromagnetic field that screens out so much of the radiation from, from the sun, but it allows for the warmth of the sun to come into the sky and warm your face. It's just the perfect electromagnetic field that allows for life on planet Earth. Where did that come from? God created this. He created this. I was reading a scientist this week about this picture, and he says, you know, it's a helpful picture, but it doesn't really explain exactly what's going on, so he created his own picture to help people better understand. And here's the picture that he created, and I thought, oh, now I get it. Now I understand I didn't get it before, but now, now I get it. <laughs> and scientists marvel at this. They say the center of the earth, the core of the earth, is radically unstable and, in, and completely stable at the same time. This is just one little detail. And remember, earth is not, it's not frozen in space. It's moving. Our planet right now, we are right now moving at an incredible pace. The rotational speed of earth The speed at which we spin is 1,000 miles per hour. Earth is spinning 1,000 miles per hour. The orbital speed of planet Earth as we move around the sun is 67,000 miles per hour. So we're spinning 1,000 miles per hour. We're orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And the orbital speed of the sun, because the sun is moving and the gravitational pull of the sun is dragging us along with it. The orbital speed of the sun is 448,000 miles per hour moving. The orbital speed of the Milky Way, our galaxy, is millions of miles per hour throughout space. And when you add all of that up, what it comes to is a lot of miles per hour. That Earth is moving (laughs) through space, millions of miles per hour. Right now, and we can sit here and we feel completely still. You feel totally stable sitting right here. This is the world that God has made. 
and he created it perfectly. He created it perfectly. The design is spectacular, and we are to marvel at it. If you don't marvel at creation, you're not paying attention. We are to marvel at what God has made. Day five. Day five, Genesis 1.20. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful, and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. So on the fifth day, God creates fish, sea creatures, birds, winged creatures. So remember what's happening. Days one through three, God is forming. Remember the earth, verse two, was formless and empty. So what God does days one through three is he forms the earth. Days four through six, he fills it. So he creates the sky, and now he fills the sky with birds. He creates the ocean, and he fills the ocean with fish and sea creatures. He creates the land, and on day six, which we're going to study next week, he fills the land with life. And again, we are supposed to marvel at this. Here's a picture of a hummingbird. Have you ever studied a hummingbird before? If you haven't, you should. They are spectacular. Here's a hummingbird. Here's a sea turtle and some fish. They're just hanging out in the ocean there. If you want to go to the next picture, you got a bald eagle there. You have some parrots right here. God even created this demon-possessed bird right there. I don't know. I mean, those are just a few different creatures that God has made. There are thousands and thousands and countless thousands of creatures that God has made. And what we are to envision is, is the ocean, which is empty, no life. And then God fills the ocean and dolphins, he speaks, and now dolphins are swimming. It's like as if they had been there all along. Nothing, dolphins swimming. The sky is empty, and then you have blue jays flying, eagles flying. He just speaks, boom, they're in flight. And you think it can't be like that. Didn't they like crawl out of the primordial soup and like, it's like, no, no, no. What's being taught is that God just speaks, boom. And they're there. On day five, God gives a blessing. Verse 22, God bless them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. The point is that God blessed them, and it's a blessing to multiply. He created reproduction, that creatures can reproduce. Mountains don't reproduce. Oceans don't reproduce. But creatures, these creatures that he has made, they are going to reproduce and fill the earth. Now, next week, we're going to look at day six on how God fills the land with the creation of the animals and then Adam and Eve. But I want to take some time to look at the second question here this morning, which is what are we supposed to learn from the passage? What are we supposed to learn from Genesis chapter one? Well, what is crystal clear from Genesis chapter one is that God is the creator. God is the creator. He is the creator of everyone and everything. So when our souls ask the question, where did it all come from? Where did everything come from? We are to say, God made it. He made it. Where did the light come from? He made it. Where did the stars come from? He made it. 
And when we find ourselves in awe of creation, we should not stop at creation. We should let our souls keep going all the way to the God who made everything. Creation is designed to produce worship in us. We are to worship God as the creator, certainly as the sustainer, the redeemer. We should worship God for all that he is. But certainly we are to worship him as our creator. We would not exist if it wasn't for him. Nothing would be apart from him. And as Christians, if you're looking for a little application, as Christians, we must not minimize or shrink away from declaring God to be the creator. He is the creator. God is the creator of heaven and the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. We live in his world. This is his world that we live in. We live in his universe. And many Christians are intimidated to talk about God as creator in the public square. They are intimidated. They don't want to talk about God as the creator in the public square. Because when you do, many people look at you like you're a mindless, brain-dead, superstitious moron. You mean you believe that God created everything? You heard about science? Are you brain-dead? And so we're not very... It's easy to not be confident moving into that space. But I want to just take a minute and put a little tool in your tool belt. That's what I want to do. Put a little tool in your tool belt that I hope will first strengthen your soul and then it will help you engage with the culture. And so here's here's the tool. It's very simple. I've used this for 20 years. Here's the idea. If you reject God as creator, if someone rejects God as creator, then the person who who rejects God as creator must affirm one of two realities. There's only two other possible realities to affirm. Option one is that the universe, at least in some form, is eternal. So when you ask the question, where did everything come from? One option would be to say, it's always been. The universe is eternal. It has no beginning. It's always been. Option two is to affirm that time, space, matter, and the laws which govern the universe came into existence uncaused and out of nothing. So if if the universe is not eternal in the past, then the only other option is that time, space, matter, and the laws which govern the universe came into existence, existence uncaused and out of nothing. Now, brothers and sisters, both of these options are logical, philosophical, and scientific absurdities. It is absurd to to affirm that the universe is eternal in the past. And it is absurd to affirm that time, space, matter, and the laws which govern the universe came into existence uncaused and out of nothing. I am not aware of any serious philosopher or scientist that believes the universe is eternal in the past. Maybe there are, I'm sure there are, but I'm not aware of, of any serious philosophers or scientists who believe that the universe is eternal in the past. Every time you hear people say the universe is 13.8 billion years old, they are declaring the universe began to exist. It has a beginning. And therefore, the universe is not eternal in the past, which begs the question, where did it come from? Where did it come from? And if matter is not, if matter, time, space, energy, the laws that govern the universe came into existence... At a certain time. That means they didn't exist before that. That means that everything, time, space, matter, and the laws which govern the universe 
came from nothing. So you get everything, literally everything, out of nothing, which violates the most fundamental maxim in all reasoning and logic, the Latin phrase, ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing comes nothing. You do not get everything from nothing. This is the most self-evident truth you can possibly imagine. Out of nothing comes nothing. So brothers and sisters, to reject God as creator is to place a logical, philosophical, and scientific absurdity at the foundation of existence. It doesn't make any sense at all. It is nonsense. So we have good, logical, scientific, philosophical, and most importantly, we have good theological reasons, biblical reasons, to believe God is the creator of everyone and everything. We stand on a firm foundation when we declare God created the heavens and the earth. We are not on shaky ground. Those who reject God as creator stand on logical absurdities. We stand on firm ground. We must not back away. We must not back away from the doctrine of creation. Secondly, we learn how God created the universe, that God created the universe through his word. He said, let there be light. This demonstrates the certainty and the power of his word. And we're gonna talk a lot more about this in the coming weeks, but when God speaks, it happens. Genesis 1, it displays the creative power of God's word, and it displays the sustaining power of God's word. This week, I've been challenged all week long, and I want you to think about this question. Here's the question. If God created the heavens and the earth by his word, do you believe that? If God created everything, the heavens and the earth, by his word, and if God sustains everything by his powerful word, how do you think God intends to sustain you? How do you think God intends to give you power? Do you lack power? In your temptation against sin, do you lack power? How do you think he intends to strengthen you? It is through his word. I mean, what, what joy and power we forfeit when we do not meditate on his word. When we meditate on lesser things, what power do we give up? What comfort do we give up? What peace do we give up when we meditate on the day-to-day anxieties of life instead of his word? So brothers and sisters, meditate on his word. It is his word that created all things. It is his word that sustains all things and he wants to empower you and sustain you and strengthen you and comfort you through his word. Next we learn that God created everything through his word in six days. God created everything through his word in six days. This is the unavoidable conclusion of the text. Now here's the question. Are these six literal 24-hour days? Well, in the, in the world today, you're gonna find three very common answers. The first view is what is called theistic Darwinian evolution, commonly referred to as theistic evolution but I call it theistic Darwinian evolution because that's what it is. This position holds that the six days of creation are God's days and not 24-hour literal days. This position affirms that the earth and the universe are old and that life on earth is old, millions, countless millions of years old. And this is an attempt 
to merge modern Dar Darwinian evolution and the Bible. This is what it is. It's an attempt to try to merge these two. And what they, what they proclaim is that God has intervened through Darwinian evolution, the evolutionary process, to create the diversity and complexity of life, that God guided evolution. And there are many born-again, Bible-believing Christians who hold this view. There are many. But I am convinced, brothers and sisters, we should reject it. You should reject, Christians should reject theistic Darwinian evolution, that that is God's mechanism for creating and or creating life, and this idea that Darwinian evolution explains the diversity and complexity of life. Now, why should we reject it as Christians? Why should we, we reject this? I'm going to give you four reasons quickly. First, theistic Darwinian evolution is incompatible with the Bible. The plain reading of Genesis 1 states that God created everything by the power of his word, that he, he just said, birds, and there were birds, dolphins, and there were dolphins, stars and there were stars he did this by the power of his word darwinian evolution posits that from ancient literally billions of years old primordial soup there was a single cell organism that somehow snapped into existence and from there all the diversity and complexity of life came i think that is incompatible with genesis chapter one number two in theistic darwinian evolution death does not enter the world through sin Death does not enter the world through sin. They will say God created all the life that exists on planet Earth through Darwinian evolution over the course of billions of years. But what that means is that death came billions of years before human life. Death came billions of years before sin entered the world. And it means that death is the mechanism by which modern life comes into existence. Through this brutal world of dying and dying and dying and dying and dying and dying for billions of years. Death, therefore, is not the result of sin. Number three, in theistic Darwinian evolution, a literal atom becomes almost impossible. It doesn't become technically impossible, but be it becomes almost impossible. We're going to talk about a literal Adam and Eve next week. But what Darwin theistic Darwinian evolution posits is that humanoids have existed for hundreds of thousands of years in tra transitional versions of humanoids have existed for millions of years. And at some point during this billions of years long process, there was a literal human being named Adam in Eve. But it makes a mockery of the idea that God formed Adam in the Garden of Eden. It becomes almost impossible to affirm a literal Adam and Eve. And number four, there is no need to accommodate Darwinian evolution. There's no need. Darwinian evolution has almost no explanatory power. Darwinian evolution does not explain how you get life from non-life. It does not explain the complexity or diversity of life. The more that is discovered about DNA in the cell, the less plausible Darwinian evolution becomes. Many, many, many scientists believe that Darwinian evolution is a theory in crisis. Because the more we learn, the further away Darwinian evolution becomes. Certainly there is microevolution, that's an observable fact. But macroevolution, as a theory that explains life, or life coming from non-life, and the complexity and diversity of life, it is not 
it is not a good theory. And I don't think it's a strong enough or clear enough theory in the scientific world that Christians should feel the pressure to accommodate it. I think we can reject it. So what should we believe? Good question. Should we believe that the earth is young? Less than 10,000 years old? Can you believe that the earth is old and that God is the creator? Do you have to believe that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in order to be faithful to the word of God? Or is the only option the earth is young and man is young? Well, would you like to know the answer to that question? <laughs> you should come back next week. <laughs> next week, we're going to answer those questions in the creation of Adam and Eve. And I just want to encourage you as we close. This is what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to not ignore the glory of creation. Do not ignore the glory of creation. Worship God. When you see creation, the stars, worship him. Thank him for what he's done. And do not ignore the power of his word. How'd you do reading the the word of God this week? Was it your bread? Is it what sustained you? You need his word more than you need food. So love it, delight in it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we see that you and you alone, you're the creator. Help us to love and worship you in all we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.